Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, David is talking to Brian Lynch, a veteran in the solar industry who is currently Senior VP of Sales at ADT Solar. Brian gives us insight into what it's like going from the manufacturing side of things to residential, the recent supply chain difficulties, and what the future of residential solar looks like. Let's get right into it on The Solar Podcast. Well, I'd like to welcome Brian Lynch to the Solar Podcast uh, for this episode. We're, we're thrilled to have him on the podcast. He's definitely an industry expert. I am Dave Anderson. Uh, my experience in solar, first of all, came from residential sales uh, on the home security side. So I actually have a little bit of experience working with ADT long before I had ever worked in solar. Um, and then for the last 12 years, I've worked as an executive in solar as one of the founders of Complete Solar. Uh, Brian, you and I have actually crossed paths over the years, uh, either at industry events or actually sitting down at a luncheon. I, I, I can remember a specific event sitting down with you. I think it was at SPI uh, talking. With, that was during your time at, at uh, LG, but I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Certainly, they could look at your LinkedIn profile, but it'd be great to get an introduction from you. Yeah, Dave, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for allowing me to talk solar my wife is sick of hearing me talk about solar. So the more I can share my solar industry thoughts, uh, the less she has to hear about it. Our wives share that same misery. So <laughs> so if you're looking me up on LinkedIn, that's where I'm active most. As we were talking about prior to hitting record, there's actually two Brian Lynch's in solar. So if you don't like anything I say, hit up the Brian Lynch that's based in California. I'm the Brian Lynch in New York. And he will hear that and, and certainly send me a message. But I've been in solar since mid-2000s. actually started on the policy side of the industry uh, working for a company called Shot Solar. So if you're a solar OG, you might remember Shot as having the first 300-watt module. It was like 100 pounds. It was a behemoth. And in 2008, they opened up a factory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that I was actually just watching some Breaking Bad episodes. And they, it's, it's made it in a, a cameo or two in, in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Unfortunately, that closed like so many domestic manufacturing facilities back in 20, I think 11 or 12. From there, I went to a company called Solar World. Again, if you're a solar OG, you have a knowledge of Solar World. Uh, great products, a big factory up in Oregon, but they were also one of the big trade antagonists. And so whether you loved them or hated them, they're certainly known for that. Uh, that factory in Oregon was acquired by SunPower. But prior to that happening, and I was leading the development EPC team at, at Solar World. So manufacturing experience, but but now also construction experience. I left to join an energy storage startup uh, that ended up losing funding after a year, at which point I joined LG, have been with LG for uh, it was just under four years. And then they, of course, announced their market exit recently. And I used uh, that moment to move over to the B2C and residential side and joined ADT Solar, uh, leading all revenue generating activities for their, their solar business, which has been, been quite a ride. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So would you say that your time now at AET is a deviation from what you'd kind of previously been doing, working more with some of those manufacturers? Absolutely. So at LG, we predominantly supported the residential sector and actually SunPro, which was the predecessor company that ADT acquired to form ADT Solar, had become our largest customer at LG. And so I was getting very involved in this idea of the solar supply chain to support residential installations and the residential market. But it's a big difference working for a manufacturer that is supporting a residential installer base to actually working for an installer themselves and leading a sales org of over a thousand people that are actually calling on homeowners and, and literally sitting at their kitchen tables hundreds of times every day. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny to talk about solar OGs going back to 2004, 2012, but those really, real, those really were early days of solar, uh, for sure. I started in 2010 in solar, and it was obviously um, a, a fraction of the size it is today. Um, so it's been a huge evolution. So for you being back all the way back from 2004, that's um, that's that's uh, it's pretty rare to find a person that's been in solar as long as you have, to say the least. I don't know if that's a, an insult or a, an accolade. Uh, I think my receding hairline, my wife calls my, my hairline, my, my solar panels. But yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel old when you go back to the mid 2000s and you realize that that actually was like over 15 years ago. But it's been so much fun to watch this industry blossom. And there was a famous, um, I think it was an IEA report that showed this like incredible hockey stick for solar that was going to happen in like 2020. And back in 2007, 2008, you looked at that and you said, that's ah, a hockey stick chart. That'll never happen. But it did happen. It has happened. And it's incredible to have been a part of this ride in some small way, making my contribution. I, I love what I do. I love the people I work with. And I love the fact that I can look my kids in the eyes and, and provide them a very comfortable, great life and do it in a way that's improving their lives when they're adults, uh, hopefully in, in, in some uh, small way. Yeah, it, it's certainly been hockey stick growth looking back to the 2010, maybe even 2004 time period. But I think in 10 years when we're looking back at this, the magnitude of where solar will be relative to where it is today, we're, we're going to be talking about the explosive growth that happens over the next handful of years being uh, much more dramatic, I think, than even what's happened since 2010. Uh, I think, uh, and, and I'd be curious, um, now working at ADT, the juggernaut in home security, obviously making a big splash with its announcement of purchasing SunPro, which I'm sure you're going to be happy to explain and talk about. That's a, that's a big deal for the industry, and I think it signals kind of where solar is going in terms of, of reach and in terms of hopeful explosive growth. But the figure that I hear most is somewhere between three and maybe as high as six percent, but three percent market penetration, um, depending on how you define what the available market size is. So maybe you can kind of go into this a little bit for us. Actually, if it's okay, I'd like to go back one quick step. So, Shot Solar, you said hundred pound module. What was the power class panel that Shot was building at the time when you first joined them? Yeah, it, it was a 300 watt module, but it wasn't a 300 watt module like we think about that was around four or five years ago. These were four inch cells. I mean, the, the technology, Dave, that was around in 2006, 2007 is light years different than what's being manufactured today. Right? There's a trick in in modules where, you know, there's a constant progression up. Historically, the industry had standardized on these 60 and 72 cell module for formats and form factors. And so they were relatively interchangeable. They made design and balance the system super easy. And in the last couple of years, we've now seen the proliferation of things like half cell modules or half cut cell modules and these wonky form factors that I've effectively dubbed uh, BAMs or big honking modules. You can, you can change the A acronym if you'd like to, to what it actually is. Um, and it's, it's kind of a sleight of hand a 600 watt module isn't necessarily more efficient than a 400 watt module if it's just that much larger. And and now you have to really dive into the spec sheets. And we've, as an industry, we, we kind of have to now flex our technical muscles a little bit to say, what is the cell architecture? What is the efficiency? What's the degradation curves? It's not always bigger is better because especially in like utility scale applications, that 600 watt module 
might not be compatible with your single axis tracker, or if it is, it's going to maybe stress out the purlins or cause some sort of wind loading issue that maybe hadn't been in consideration when you're using a smaller form factor module. Yeah. And so you went from shot 300 watt power class module to solar world, which usually pushed, you know, to being a higher um, efficiency module relative to other modules that existed in the marketplace. And then obviously to LG, which was considered a premium product and certainly a more efficient product than other products that were in the market. And uh, I'm curious, how did you decide to go from shot to solar world and the solar world to LG? Obviously I understand why you left each of those places, but, um, what was, uh, what, what caused you to want to go from the one to the next to the next? Yeah. You know, it, I think like anything in my life, every day is, is, is brought to me by the question of days prior. And so shot, I actually kind of fell backwards into that role. I was working for the corporate parent of shot solar, which was the shot company or shot AG, um, doing policy work and solar was my biggest internal client. And so then I moved full time into the solar business when shot exited. Um, I had been working closely with the executive team at solar world as they were doing some of their, their trade stuff. And, and by the way, you go back in OG world, it was, it was solar world and even like, I think it was the secret six shot was not one of the members of the secret six. I, I can say that now 10 years later, but we were watching what they were doing on the policy side. And I know when you talk policy and trade with solar, there are very legitimate and very vocal opponents to, to those trade actions. And I certainly respect those, but I also saw the other side of, Hey, companies were violating trade laws. Uh, they were cheating and either wanted to accept that and accept the risk that comes with that, or you want to stand against it. And so I didn't join solar world specifically because of their trade actions. I just had a very high comfort level with that executive team. And so I was hired by the president at the time and he then left actually pretty shortly after I started. And that enabled me to, to stand up their uh, development EPC team. Then going to LG, it was actually through just kind of my network. I, I wasn't really looking to join LG at the time, but someone who had left solar world then joined LG and wanted to bring me in because they saw an opportunity for me there. And so it wasn't this like, deliberate path to say, I was always going to work for the biggest brand or the highest efficiency product. It was simply, I know that customer base. I know how to sell a non-commoditized product in a commoditized space. And that's a very tricky thing to do. And so, so that's kind of how that career arc happened. And I would say as LG was announcing his exit, you know, my desire to, to leave was simply, I've suffered enough brain damage in manufacturing. I, I personally just don't want to work for a Chinese company. I have nothing wrong with Chinese people or Chinese companies, but I just, I didn't want to do it. And, and I looked at the other manufacturers and high degree of respect for Q cells and REC and mission solar, but I just, I couldn't do it to myself again. And so learning this side of the industry has been a phenomenal experience to, to flex my kind of cognitive capacity, humble myself that this is a, a very important side of the industry and it's making me smarter as I uh, become a more complete solar professional. No pun intended, Dave. Yeah, of course. So this, the world has struggled with supply chain, uh, but solar has, particularly right now, some unique struggles with supply chain. And I think actually, given your experience at S Solar World, you're pretty uniquely positioned to kind of explain why we find ourselves in the in the situation we were. So you talked about Solar World being really active. Uh, they were um, 
very active in trying to legislate or push for legislation to add tariffs to solar modules that were coming specifically out of China, but all imported solar modules. So maybe if you wouldn't mind just kind of talking about that, giving an overview. So many of the listeners of this podcast are actually people that are out selling actively solar, and others of them are just people that happen upon the podcast because they're interested in solar for their own homes. Maybe you can kind of give an understanding about why we're struggling with supply chain uh, and and. It, a lot of its origins actually have to do with Solar World, interestingly. Solar World and Cineva. So there was a company that's actually still around and still active in the policy front, even though they haven't had an operational factory in probably five or six years. Um, great hopes to turn it back on, but have yet to do it. Uh, yeah, and the, the genesis of this, and I'll try and be relatively quick. Uh, Google is your, is your friend on this. Is I joke that every solar company in 2008 came to the same conclusion. There was insatiable demand relative to supply. And the economies of scale of manufacturing absolutely hold true to solar. If you build larger factories, you can make more money. And so Schott at the time, I think, had a 15 megawatt factory in Massachusetts, which today is laughable. 15 megawatts, uh, ADT Solar basically sells that much every day. And, and so the, the, the idea was, let's build a 200 megawatt factory in Albuquerque. But the problem is every other solar company on the exact same day came to the exact same conclusion as well as folks over in China. And China really published a, a five-year plan with just tremendous ambitions. Uh, the, the Chinese government said, you know, they saw the same hockey stick charts, I would assume, and they said, listen, we can really make this a reality if we can take the cost of solar today, which at the time, you know, Resi install was $10, $12 a watt, 200-watt modules were being sold for $2 a watt. That was like my favorite period because it was super easy. And they said, if we can take costs out of this thing, then we can make this a, a really important uh, power generation source. And so as much as, as China can be faulted for some of the trade issues, uh, they, they also enabled this rapid scale. And I think everyone needs to understand and respect that, uh, uh, including myself. But the problem is, is, is there's trade laws. And you can't do things like have unnatural support in the supply chain, free land, free power, free debt. And there's a joke for a while, you can't kill a Chinese company because Beijing would just kind of swoop in and they would restructure it and sell it to somebody else. But from a Western economic principle, you can't do that. And so that's why the original anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, claim was filed, because the Chinese were simply deliberately selling below cost in a game of chicken with every Western manufacturer. At the time, you had big ones. You had BP, you had Sharp, you had these brands that, again, the solar OGs are, are going to kind of smile when they hear, but they were pushed out of the market because of this unnatural pressure. If you have a cost structure of a, a shot or a sharp or a BP, and you're basically engaged in a game of chicken with the Chinese government, and no Western large multinational is going to choose to engage in that battle. And so they all kind of exited one at a time. The difference with SolarWorld and Cineva is they were pure play solar companies. They couldn't fall back on TVs or oil and gas or anything else. They had to either file chapter seven and, and, and hemorrhage cash until they did that and go away, or they were going to fight back. And they chose to fight back. And so the original tariff scope was just on cells made in Taiwan or China. And so what started with this is a cat and mouse game. China said, okay. And so they set up factories in Southeast Asia and they changed their supply chains around. And so that created a second round of ADCVD tariffs, again, this anti-dumping countervailing duties. Uh, which then closed that original loophole that was created. And then finally in, in 2016, 
Suniva was on their, I think 2015 and 2016, they were on the ropes. They just couldn't do it anymore. They're about to file bankruptcy. And that's when this 201 tariff came in. And 201 tariff, Dave, is what you're referencing, that every imported module was going to be subjected to a tariff. And so at the time originally said no to that. They said, listen, our trade activities and, and whether or not anyone wants to believe this is true, it was that they didn't want to uh, harm the broader market for their ability to succeed. And so they said, listen, there's enough supply chain outside of China that we can put barriers for China up, but you still have market access. And they were just trying to levelize the playing field with this stuff. But now you're taking every imported module that was coming from Korea or Singapore or Germany or anywhere and subjecting it to this tariff, which now is artificially raising the price. But at the same time, Solworld was also in a bad spot. And so they finally consented to sign on with the Cineva petition for the 201, which is how we had that original 30% 201 tariff. And that by law steps down and it steps down every year for four years. And it was just renewed uh, earlier this year to go now another four years starting at 15%. But during that time, there was the bifacial exclusion. There were all these loopholes that were created. So it never really had a tremendous market impact. And then what happened last summer is a group of companies and I don't know who was behind them because they never were named, said, wait, let's go back to this anti-dumping countervailing duty petition. Because what's happened is, is the Chinese companies all set up factories, not all, a lot of them set up factories in Southeast Asia. And so you were buying companies' products, the Chinese companies' products made in Vietnam or Thailand using Chinese supply chain, Chinese labor, Chinese everything. They just happened to be coming from these other countries. And they said, well, WTO, it's illegal. You can't do that. And so they filed this petition. The Chinese uh, you know, uh, defendants said, listen, we can't defend ourselves if we don't know who the plaintiffs are. And so Department of Commerce dropped that case. When they dropped that case, there was a few of us in the industry going, ooh, be careful what you wish for in this one, because they dropped it simply because the petitioners weren't named. And so all it would take would be one petitioner to name themselves. And that's what happened. So back in February, Company called Oxen Solar, which is based in Southern California, and they're traditionally a contract manufacturer, which is why most people don't know them. Said, you know what? We're willing to take the mask off. I'm picturing like Scooby Doo. They're they're pulling the mask off. Oh, it's it's Oxen Solar, um, and they said we're going to file a petition, and they have an absolute legal right under the law to file this petition. And this is where the industry I have a personal frustration with. People are throwing stones at the Biden administration, saying, "How can you accept this petition? How can you slow the market down so much because you have such broad climate ambitions?" because of one little company that's a bit player in the industry. Why? Because we have laws, because we respect laws. And the law says that they're allowed to do it. Whether or not you like the law, it's a real thing. And so uh, the, the commerce really had no choice but to take the petition. Why this is so damaging to the supply chain is because the original petition by the secret companies named specific companies in specific countries. The Oxen petition takes that away. They just do every company in these countries that account for something like 80% of the imports into the U.S., which is why it's gummed things up. And as much as some people are hoping and wishing that this thing goes away, if it goes forward, tariffs, and they're substantial, they range from 50% to 250%, are retroactive back to the date that Commerce picked up the petition. And so every module is imported from one of those countries today faces the risk of a 50% to 250% tariff. There's a range based on who the company is and if they're named or not named, and I won't get into that, but I can tell you no manufacturer is making 50% margin, especially with the increased cost of everything. And so now there's a philosophical question in the industry. Do we want cheap Chinese imports and maybe we turn our back to trade law or 
and and that way will that will enable deployment that'll that'll meet all these wonderful things that solar can do with downstream job creation with all the environmental attributes that go along with it great things but the problem is is last summer and people conveniently don't talk about this china issued power curtailment and the cost of everything out of china not just solar components went up because they were engaged in this battle with australia they weren't going to import australian coal and so they were throttling their factories they were throttling their power well, guess what? If you have nowhere to turn but Chinese companies, you have nowhere to turn. And so all the project delays and cancellations we're seeing right now actually were rooted back in the inability to source Chinese product from over the summer. And this exposes the fragility of having a reliance on simply one country. And even though it's made in Thailand and Vietnam, those were just many Chinas as it relates to manufacturing, the industry couldn't turn anywhere else. They had nowhere else to go because they had allowed themselves to be participants in this game where China and Beijing wanted to control a significant amount of the manufacturing capacity. It's great when things are great, but they're not a benevolent society. They want to make money in this. And so once they reach a certain market penetration and share, this was eventually going to go away. Brian, that's a fantastic overview. So if I were to try to summarize that down into the simplest way I could, uh, there are several trade laws that are in place. Once these laws uh, once the tariffs were enacted, uh, handfuls of manufacturers tried to discover loopholes to try to figure out how to avoid paying these tariffs. And the petition really is saying that these countries or governments or manufacturing facilities were circumventing the tariffs by shifting and moving their manufacturing around. And, and the big danger here is, is that they've been doing it for a long time and these tariffs now become potentially retroactive. And this case is going to take some number of months before it's resolved. And there's speculation that it's going to go away. There's also speculation that it's not. And the uncertainty has caused some of the major manufacturers to completely pull out of the U.S. market. And they're now selling their modules other places. So which is going to create a huge uh, supply deficit here in the United States. Uh, supply and demand economics simply state that if there's lower supply, the costs are going to go up. And so uh, what sorts of, and, and, and I don't know if you um, want to speak to this specifically or just generally, but what sorts of price increases have we seen on the residential side for manufacturing as a result of uh, not just the tariffs, but specifically this petition that has been raised that's now um, pulling these manufacturers or, or forcing some of these manufacturers to pull out of the country? Yeah, so, so I don't want to cite specifics because there's there's high variability in terms of like when you signed you know agreements, and this is all about like market hedging and stuff. And so the data points that I have are yep. not necessarily representative of everybody else. But you know, I, uh, Phil Shannon Roth Capital issues a great report. He, he he cited some numbers a couple of weeks ago, and so I would I'd point your listeners if if they're very curious about this to look at kind of industry analysts to answer that question. But what, what I'd say to this, Dave, is that there's two things. There is a, a supply demand price elasticity that is allowing manufacturers um, to, to raise their pricing due to scarcity. But let's not ignore the fact that the pricing has gone up of everything. You know, the, I, I don't want to cite specifics, but just the cost to ship a module from Asia to the U.S. is up hundreds of a percentage point. That, that, there was an S there if you couldn't hear it at the end. And yes, shipping is relatively small in a full container modules relative to the dollar per watt basis, but it just that's a, that's a great example to show how the costs have increased. If you're manufacturing in Canada or the US or Singapore, your labor costs are way up, right? And so all these costs are, are being put into the modules. And so the module manufacturers have to recover these cost increases. There's 
and this is not limited to solar, right? If you've if you've left a cave in the last six months, the price of everything is way up. Annualized inflation is up 8%, but especially hard goods and durable goods are up even higher than that. Um, but here's where it's not purely a, a supply demand kind of economics 101 conversation. Everyone knows that if you raise the price of solar too much, projects don't pencil. Whether it's a utility scale project or residential project, the idea of the current kind of power mix or, or retail power supply um, is ultimately the, the, the upper kind of limit of how much you can raise price. And so now you have this idea of a module manufacturer, you know, wants to sell a module for $2 per watt and, and the econ class would, would tell you they could do it just based on supply demand um, uh, imbalance, but no one can buy that module $2 a watt and successfully install it into an economically viable project or not enough people can do it. And so you really have a price ceiling where the manufacturers are aware of it. And so, yes, they do need to claw back. I think the industry needs to be respectful of this because everyone in a project needs to benefit. The end customer needs to get reliable power at a price that's beneficial for them. The EPC or installer needs to be able to install it at a price that they can make money at so they can perpetuate their business. And the manufacturing and suppliers and everyone in that value chain needs to be able to make money so they can continue their business, right? And when you rely on someone to lose money to make your project economically viable, you're gambling. And it's just worked very well in the solar industry for a very long time, but you have to acknowledge that eventually it's not going to work out for you. And so this is where the industry needs to kind of mature in a, in a lot of ways. We need to become more sophisticated in the true cost of all of this and build economic models and business plans that don't rely on the person next to you to lose money to support your business's ability to be profitable. Yeah. And I don't actually mind sharing the anecdote um, or, um, uh... It's fairly specific, but an anecdote nonetheless. So the manufacturers that we talked to have talked about their shipping costs going from around $4,000 a container to over $20,000 a container. And that's about $100,000 worth of module modules. So it's material. Um, yeah, so yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing you're seeing huge increases. And, and, and it's other stuff too, right? I mean, they have to ship the raw goods to their facilities. It's, it's, it's not just shipping the modules here. So um, I actually talked with a, ma a module manufacturer that was trying to figure out if they could pencil flying the modules in the cost of flying them in relative to a container, just because it's difficult to get a container and then you have to pay for the container. So it seems crazy to think that you'd actually ship solar modules by plane. Um, but that's kind of where we're at right now that people are kind of considering crazy things. So, and Dave, I mean, this goes back to the whole philosophical question about the tariffs. We have no choice as an industry but to look at crazy things like air freighting solar modules. And by the way, for your listeners that are not industry professionals, a solar module right now is about 50 pounds. Pallets are usually 30 modules per pallet. Think about the weight. I don't know if you've ever, you know, priced something for air freight from Asia to the U.S. Not cheap. And so imagine like a, a FedEx 767 full of solar panels. I mean, that's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in freight costs. Freight costs alone to air freight a solar panel, like the economics of that fall apart so fast. And so you'd say, well, who would do that? Well, the reality is, is, is we're so painted in a corner right now because of this imbalance. People are doing crazy things like that to get projects across the finish line because, because projects are stranded, they're orphaned. Um, and we didn't even talk about the withhold release order, which is U.S. government and customs has accused certain manufacturers of utilizing uh, forced labor or slave labor um, in their supply chains, which is a big no-no in the U.S. And, and so that also has gummed up the supply chain. And again, as a buyer of solar panels, you're looking around going, wait, I don't want to participate in that. I don't want my customers to be exposed to that. I don't have any other options. What do I do? 
And this is the vexing problem. And and as an industry, and so, so hey, big problem, what's the solution? I'm not gonna say that the US needs to become a manufacturing juggernaut. Economists have dismissed that. As an economy, maybe we don't need to be a manufacturer, but we need to have manufacturing allies. And, and ultimately the best allies ourselves, and we can't rely on Germany or Canada to make all this stuff for us. And so we need to take care of ourselves. There's provisions in the Build Back Better bill, and we won't get into the politics of that, that really supported full domestic value chain manufacturing. And it's not just solar panels, it's not just solar cells, it's the gap in between the polysilicon, which is the very raw material at the top of the supply chain, and the finished grid at the bottom, which is a solar panel. China controls 91 and 96%, depending on the analysis report you read, um, capacity of the ingot and wafer step. And, and again, if you're a layperson listening to this, you're going, what is that? It's the thing you need to make solar panels. It's all you have to know. And, and so you build a module factory in the US, and LG is a prime example of this. They had a manufacturing facility in Huntsville, Alabama, but if you can't source your waiver from anybody at cost effective because there's only two two big companies in China to do it at scale, company A or company B, and they're manipulating pricing, well, you know, with all the supply uh, demand imbalance, you would think that that Huntsville factory would be wildly profitable. Well, it's a challenging thing if your suppliers are manipulating your price. Yeah, and to be clear, some of the air freight stuff that I've heard is really on the ingot or wafer or cell side of things, trying to do assembly and manufacturing in the United States or Mexico or Canada. But, but, but to yeah. your point, it, there's actually it's a it's actually a step backward in terms of some of the environmental attributes and benefits of solar when you start air freighting your your uh, your cells around as well. So um, definitely not something that's favorable uh, to do, but it definitely uh, shows the desperation that some of the manufacturers are in to try to figure out how to solve. And, and, and I don't want to say get around policy, but we all want to make sure that the manufacturers are being good actors and performing in a way that's uh, consistent with, with laws and, and, but also good for the economy and good for the marketplace. So, it's, but it's an interesting place. And, and I think that's a fantastic overview. It goes deep enough, I think, that people kind of have an understanding why we're seeing some cost increases, but not so deep that I don't think the lay listener or the, the average person couldn't follow on. And I think it's a really fantastic overview. overview. So I appreciate that, Brian. And we, we very get into, well, I was going to say, there's very passionate feelings about all of this. And I respect the other side. Again, if you're an industry person and you're yelling at the Biden administration to make this go away magically, you are ignoring the fact that there's a legal process they have to follow. It's not the Biden administration's fault. I'm pretty sure no one at Commerce wants this to be happening right now, but we can't be throwing stones at the Biden administration. We need to be advocating and supporting for policy that allows us to have domestic manufacturing because that's truly what makes this go away. If we never achieve that, then we will constantly be engaged in this cat and mouse game. And we don't need that or want that as an industry. Sorry. Soapbox. Yeah, I think that's Soapbox. a real I think that's a real fair commentary for uh, the administration, the presidency, and frankly, why it seems it can be such a head scratcher for people that are in the industry or out of the industry to see you have these really fantastic regulations uh, and legislation that makes solar easier, the ITC specifically, the 30% or 26% investment tax credit that consumers are eligible to receive as part of an installation of a solar project. But then you see these tariffs and other sort of like what what some pe people would perceive as artificial costs or things that are inflating the the costs unnecessarily, not artificial, but unnecessarily inflating the costs. And so you see the tailwinds, but then you see headwinds, and they they for many people those things seem to be in conflict with each other. But uh, I think you've given a great overview as to why both of those things might exist. So you've gone from 
very heavy on the manufacturing side for your career, you're now very much so in the trenches on the residential side in the sales of, of solar. Um, and I'd love to get just uh, maybe an overview from your now insider's perspective on on SunPro, ADT, and where they position themselves in the marketplace today and, and why you feel like that's a value to residential solar generally. Yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, ADT Solar, I think by the Solar Power World rankings, is the second largest residential installer in the U.S. I think another metric puts us at number three. But uh, irrespective, we are a very large uh, installer of almost exclusively residential solar installations, some spot commercial stuff, but the core business is residential. We're active in 22 states, so the Sunbelt states from California to the East Coast, uh, everywhere but Alabama, because they don't know how to spell solar in Alabama. And we're, we're marching relentlessly into the Midwest and Northeast. I can say that joke because it's a big omission in our map. And, and we have aspirations to be a 50 state player and, and really provide solar access to anyone that wants it. Now under the brand Halo of ADT, and, and we are a wholly owned company. We're, we're, we're not a subsidiary or anything. We're, we are part of ADT. So we don't just license the name. You know, ADT has phenomenal customer access. They have something like 6 million unique customers every year. They touch hundreds of thousands of customers on a on a regular basis. Now, I envision that to be because their smoke alarm is going off because uh, they, they they burn the toast. But you know, every day they're they're touching their customers multiple times and doing it in a way that's value add. And solar is value add. And so we're in an inflection point in the industry where we're going from early adoption to mass market. And this is where a company like ADT can provide phenomenal benefit. Because what this industry really, really suffers from, Dave, besides tariffs, is customer acquisition costs. So right now, the ability for a solar installer to find a customer who's ready to go solar and is raising their hand, it's extremely inefficient. And if we can take that cost out, we can drop the price of solar, which means more people can be economically viable for solar. And so this is really what it is so enthusiastic, excuse me, this is what makes me so enthusiastic about this acquisition and this now this brand Halo of ADT is that customers that maybe have been afraid to make a very large ticket purchase because these are tens of thousands of dollars using a local contractor that may not be in business in a couple of years, with all due respect to every small solar installer out there, some customers don't want that. And, and now having a, a brand and a company like ADT that's publicly held with a large balance sheet, being able to provide that service and that 20-year power performance guarantee is bringing in a, a customer base that now sees solar as being a, a viable uh, branded technology. We've seen like Vivint and others have, have done this as well, but I think that the timing for ADT was particularly uh, smart as we're really in the midst of the electrification of everything. Most people will be buying an EV in the next 10 years. A lot of places are phasing out natural gas. And so what's gonna happen is your electric bill is gonna go up. And the best way to solve that is on-site generation. Yeah. And ADT has around 6 million customers and an interesting model where, uh, and I don't know the exact statistics, but some number of them, maybe half of those come from dealers and half of them come from uh, the captive side or the sales reps that work directly with ADT. And with ADT Solar now being its own brand and actually made a pretty big announcement even last week with announcing its uh most people recognize the Blue Shield of ADT. It's one of the most recognized brands actually in the industry. They've spent a lot of time and effort on uh, on, it's on, on my, building It's on, it's on my hoodie, up. but you can't see it because the, the webcam, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And when I was actually an ADT, when I was an ADT dealer 20 years ago, that was actually one of the major pitches from ADT uh, in terms of 
of acquiring dealers was it's one of the most recognized brands in the industry. And it, it certainly has only improved over time uh, over the last 20 years as well, both in terms of recognition as well as in terms of just the general sentiment that people have toward it. So ADT Solar now with the and I, I don't know what the exact colors is. It's an orange bar, I guess, that goes around the shield is supposed to be the new logo and brand for ADT Solar. Um, and uh, formerly SunPro, which is now ADT Solar. So I don't know how much you want to talk about ADT's specific strategy to be able to bring some of those customer acquisition costs down. But but you're right. The industry suffers generally in spending a lot of money in acquiring each individual customer. And you've talked about grid parity or trying to figure out how to make the costs work for every homeowner in all 50 states. The solar panel cost is a small piece of it relative to the overall costs of a, of a residential installation. You know, depending on the market, it might be a sixth of the total cost, maybe a fifth of the total cost. So what sorts of things is ADT specifically doing to try to bring that customer acquisition cost down, make it more available have better reach, more accessible to more homeowners. Yeah, so I think more than anything, it's, it's brand identity. And so again, if you were a solar customer last year and you were thinking about going solar and you're doing Google research, you maybe have come across Sunrun, maybe SunPower, because those are names that, that those companies have invested heavily in to build their brand. Tesla, of course, let's not ignore those guys. And so you, you, you kind of had, a, and then a bunch of local installers. And you didn't really know what was the best option for you. And again, these are for people that are voluntarily hand raising. Uh, now with ADT, you know, if, if we convert 3% of those 6 million customers to solar because they happen to be ready to go solar and now ADT offers a viable option, you know, from a residential scale standpoint, that's huge uh, with very low customer acquisition cost. But more importantly, this is idea of this drip campaign, this and remaining front and center in an added value way to these customers. So when they're ready to go solar, the first call is to ADT which means we need to have a really crisp, high-end customer experience. We need to sell it right. We need to install it right. And we need to provide, we need to do better than we say we're going to do. And this is where the residential solar industry has honestly not done a great thing, or at least consistently, you know, there's some companies out there that are scallywags. Uh, you know, you can Google that one too. There's, there's one that's facing a, a raft of lawsuits from attorney generals and, and customer complaints. And so again, as, as now that we have this brand halo of ADT, people know and trust ADT. And I can tell you that the solar team, the reason why they acquired SunPro was because there's this customer first mentality. We're not perfect 100% of the time. This is complex residential construction at scale, but when we make a mistake, we're gonna make it right uh, or endeavor to make it right. And so I think customers have that assurance and so a willingness to, to engage with ADT and again, because we have efficiencies in customer access, we should also provide efficiencies in, in pricing and, and scale and, and service that we can offer. And, and so it's no secret, Dave, that, that now when a technician comes to your home to install your, your motion camera um, and what have you, they'll be prompted to look at the roof and say, wow, now I say a sexy solar roof. My, my wife hates it. We check in a hotel and first thing I do is I open the curtains and I go, oh, that's a sexy roof, solar thing. But now technicians and people that aren't necessarily trained to do that will look at a roof, they'll identify sexy roofs and they will solar sexy roofs and they will be able to make the suggestion of the homeowner that, hey, I think you have a great roof for solar. Have you ever considered it? And if they do that, they can get discounts on their ADT service. And again, now it's just a numbers game of how many of those are willing are willing to uh, to go solar at that time. And if they aren't ready today, that's OK. We'll be here in six months 
or six years whenever they are ready to go. But the thesis is a vast majority of them will be ready to go very quickly. Yeah, so the residential solar space has benefited from home security, either the transition of sales reps from home security companies in, into solar specifically or home security companies that have added uh, solar as part of their their overall offering. Why do you think that home security and solar have paired really well over the last 10 years or so? Or do you think there's anything specific about home security and solar that, that matches up or aligns? Dave, I, I, historically, I don't know that it ever really had efficiencies beyond customer access. And so, you know, I worked with Viv and I have a high degree of respect for that team, but solar was always in my mind, you know, their their interest in solar was a way to leverage their customer Rolodex and their engagement with their customers. But from a cohesive like product product standpoint, I don't know that it ever really like integrated. Uh, There's a lot of effort at ADT to migrate ADT from that Blue Shield company in your lawn that, that everyone associates ADT to be with, with monitoring your, your motion detectors and your, uh, your smoke detectors to becoming more of a smart home company. And so there's a big investment by Google in ADT. And so now they say connected, protected, empowered. This idea of really offering a true uh, smart home strategy that isn't limited to automation of, of lights and HVAC, but it's about power generation, power consumption, and now uh, security, which let's evolve security beyond uh, the idea of, of you know, security will be your home and access, but now energy security too, which is actually a really big thing. And, and it's not energy security, like the power's gonna go out, it's more energy security of I'm controlling that cost that seems uncontained. Yeah, so um, I want you to get that right. You said it was connected. Protected, empowered. Connected, protected, empowered. That's great. And um, in what what ways, if I'm a homeowner, is that going to show itself or show up? What, how, what's that going to, how's that going to change my life? Or what's that going to look like for me if I am an ADT solar slash ADT home security customer? And obviously with uh, Google's influence there. Yeah. I mean, honestly, today uh, we're the, <laughs> we just turned the ADT solar brand on uh, last week. Uh, so and whenever you're listening to this, that, that would be in April of 2022. And so today we're still on the uh, company integration phase, um, but there is now collaborative development efforts so we can start displaying solar data on your ADT app. And that's not live yet, but the hope is that'll be live here um, in a relatively short uh, duration. And again, as the ADT app becomes the center of the smart home universe for the customers that opt into that, integrated with Google, maybe Alexa or the other smart home services, now you're electrification your energy becomes displayed and functional and a functional part of that. It's, it's probably known that AT Solar is a very large installer of Enphase. And I will say that Enphase is a phenomenal uh, tech infrastructure as it relates to home automation, the idea of generation and energy security. So one of the, the phenomenal new products that Enphase <clears throat> just rolled out is, as they call it sunlight backup at ADT, we call it sunlight security. And what it does is it keeps your solar array on. If the grid goes down, layperson thing, it doesn't always, it, it doesn't happen if you don't have this this product from Enphase. But it, now you're talking about smart load control, about shedding load in an intelligent way to meet your either your batteries or your sunlight's capacity in these grid outage events. That's a lot of work. It sounds simple for a salesperson to say, but there's a lot of like really intensive algorithms in the background that are making that possible and happen. This is the base level of a really kind of intelligent ecosystem that will now integrate EV charging here pretty rapidly for us, as well as, a, as other home automation services. 
And so those of you that live in California and you have high time of use rates where your, your power at like 4 p.m. and in the summer is extraordinarily expensive and at 10 p.m. It, it drops down a bit. You know, if your smart home and your, your electrification automation can now control your, your uh, charge and discharge your battery so you never pay that high amount, this is where we're unlocking, we will unlock extraordinary value for our customers. And ADT is actively working on trying to make more efficient those algorithms and be able to kind of manage power. Or are you working with the end phases of the world to try to incorporate their technology onto your app that's ultimately going to be the brains of their solar? Yeah, t- today, it's co- today it's collaboration with, um, with Enphase primarily, but also Google. But, it's, but we do recognize that we have the consumer-facing portal for a lot of these homes. So Enphase is a great app. But again, the more we can centralize this onto one app for one homeowner, that's going to be the ADT app. And so, again, it's providing value-add service. The more these things that you can connect together, the more value you can unlock. So one thing that we always like to ask the people that come onto the podcast to do is just to generally talk about solar. I mean, if you were going to give the 60-second elevator pitch to the random person on the street about solar, how would you how would you categorize it or explain it and make someone that hasn't thought about it think about it for a first time maybe? Yes. So you think working for a very large consumer <laughs> resi company, I would have, I, I have a pitch, but it's like 10 minutes. So 60 seconds is where my brain is, is, is starting to seize a little bit. I mean, honestly, solar is is one of the most amazing technologies to sell and integrate and to purchase. It adds value to your home. It saves you money and it and future proofs uh, your, your home in, in so many ways. Um, I will tell you that there's a lot of disqualifiers for solar. And so not everyone should and could go solar. Um, and that's where the industry struggles is separating those that will really benefit from it for those that won't and focusing our efforts on, on those that will benefit from it. And this for the late for the, for the non-solar industry folks out there, you know, work with companies that will give you honest answers and not just try and make a sale because they can make a sale. Um, there's technical evaluations that go into this. And if you talk to enough companies and hopefully ADT Solar, you'll find the ones that are representing things right. Um, but Dave, I mean, the, the 60 second pitch is it's six seconds is solar is an incredible technology that works reliably and reliably saves people money. And then also just asking you to put on your speculator's hat for a second. Where do you see solar in the next kind of one year and then five years and 10 years? What's, what's your uh, expected evolution of this industry? Um, specifically on the residential side, I, there's, there's so many different segments of the industry. I'm going to focus this answer on residential. Of course. Um, it, it's in one year, it's, it's the tipping into mass market. It's that 50 state expansion. If you're in North Dakota or North Carolina, solar should make sense for you here very, very quickly. In five years, it's about integrating solar. So it's not a bolt-on technology. It's, it's really required technology to, to fully integrate with your home automation. And then in 10 years, it's no longer an accessory. It's not a, a thing that, that uh, affluent people have. It's something that every home, whether it's going through renovation or new construction, will be designed around solar. Yeah. And Brian, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about the things that, I mean, you, you certainly in your 20 years, uh, almost 20 years of <laughs> <Don't> experience <laughs> working, 
<laughs> almost 20 years of experience working in renewables. You've amassed a, an incredible knowledge, both on the regulatory side as well as on the manufacturing side, the supply chain side, and now specifically work with ADT, becoming the Uber expert on the residential sales side of things. So I'm sure your 60 second pitch, as good as it was, will only get better over the, ne the next coming months. But uh, um, it's been fantastic to have you on. I actually have learned, um, I actually feel like I keep fairly up to speed on a lot of these regulatory things, but learned some things that I actually hadn't fully appreciated um, by by having you come on. It's, it's something I know that our listeners listeners are certainly going to benefit from. Um, any uh, any closing thoughts from you, both on ADT, SunPower, or yourself professionally, that we should uh, certainly not miss out on having or not saying? I should say, Dave, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, always fun to to talk shop and talk to the industry. I hope I added value to not just you but everybody else that listened. That's my goal in doing these. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, the, the policy stuff we talked about, it, it's so sticky. Um, I think it's important for everyone to remember that there's an other side of the story. So it doesn't matter what side that you're on. The other side has a valid argument. And I think we need to control our, our tempers as an industry to remember that we're, we're all united on a unified cause. And the more that we're divided and present a divided face to, to the policymakers at the state level or the federal level, the more this is self-destructive to us. And so let's, let's respect the differences but speak with a unified voice about things that we can all align on. If anything I said uh, made you angry, remember I'm the Brian Lynch on the West Coast. If you like what I said, I'm happy to talk more <laughs> with you about it. I'm the Brian Lynch on the East Coast. Great. <laughs> great, great parting words. Thanks so much, Brian, for coming on. I appreciate it. So, <laughs> Appreciate it, Dave. Thanks.